Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. Today I am very pleased to welcome back an old friend of the show who's taken some time out of his extraordinarily busy schedule to talk to me. The actor, comedian, prolific podcaster and all-round good egg, Toby Haydock. It's been around a year since we last spoke to Toby on Vision on Sound and for him it has indeed been quite an astonishing year. He's launched a trio of podcasts looking at the subject of the television series Doctor Who from various points of view, which include a particular favourite which he calls Indefinable Magic, commentaries on episodes with his guests, and one of the more forensic examinations of the show ever committed to the airwaves, all of which go out under the banner of Toby Haydoke's Time Travels and can be found via tobyhaydoke.com. Alongside those, he's contributed to the value-added material on several DVD releases, written scripts for both national radio and television, and kept his weekly comedy club going throughout various national lockdowns, and of course, taken on the role of Fergus Dunford in one of the highest-profile programmes on British television, Coronation Street. So instead of me waffling on any further, let's just get on with kicking up our highly inaccurate fab radio international time engines and say a hearty welcome back to Toby Haydoke. Hello, Toby. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not so bad. Welcome back. You've had uh, quite the year since we last spoke. Yes. What have I done? Yeah, I've started a podcast during lockdown, and now we're not in lockdown, of course. It's one of those things you commit to something under strange circumstances. And, you know, it's a sign that we prob- I probably thought we weren't coming out of the other end. That's how optimistic I am. Well, but, yeah. um I've managed to, it's weird, I've managed to now, you know, build it into my daily routine. It's it's funny when you think you have no time to do anything and then you add another thing. I am astonished. I am absolutely astonished. I mean, you seem to have put about half a million of them out in the last year or so. Well, because I've got the Patreon thing going on, I'm I'm still flabbergasted. I have that performer's guilt of getting paid. I I do so admire friends and colleagues of mine who go, well, they asked me to do this thing. Uh, And I said, you know... The money's not good enough and blah, 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 blah. I'm still 25 years into the business. Mm. I still feel slightly guilty. You know, I've done stuff for the BBC and for Doctor Who DVDs where mm. I go, oh, I, won't, I won't stick an invoice in for that. All I did was check the credits or whatever. <laughs> so, so one, there's the sort of guilt of being paid for the thing that you love yes. when it sort of comes to Doctor Who. And there's the other thing of, you know, guilt as a performer of going, mm. well... It's not like I fix somebody's boiler. It's no. not a service. It's yeah. just me talking. You and... feel it's nothing special, and yet. So, know. but with the Patreon thing, you know, you have. I'm not forcing anybody. I'm putting no. a, a product out there, if you like, and people can either have it not from Patreon on iTunes, where they just listen for free, which is, mm. you know, how I consume a lot of my stuff. Or people can sign up to Patreon, and and because it seems mad to me, there is one podcast I 
do that. I've only done about five episodes of that is a patron exclusive, mm. but that seems to me not enough for mm. people who are dipping in on a monthly basis. Yeah. So the other thing I try to do is that now the commentaries that are quite easy for me to do mm. because it's just me watching an episode of Doctor Who talking mm. and, I've, and I've said I don't have to research any of that because the other podcast is quite research heavy and takes yes. quite a lot of time to put together. The commentaries were designed to be sort of off the cuff and hopefully entertaining and hopefully knowledgeable, but only of what I can sort of pluck from the top of my head. Mm. So what I've tried to do for the page there is go well at least you will be ahead of the non-patrons so the reason it comes out quite sort of quickly um, is because I was trying to churn stuff out in order that the patrons be six months ahead and so they get they get three things a week whereas non-patrons get two things a week but there was a bit of a delay so I think patrons are about about three months ahead but that did mean I had to sort of get my head down and yeah. record quite a few Doctor Who commentaries in advance but it's a bit like Terminus Part 4 now where <laughs> the ones I've just recorded are actually due out next week so ah. it's, it's... <laughs> it's catching up <laughs> yeah the, the, the train is overtaking the uh, the signal box yeah I know what you mean yeah. you've got three strands because you have the very detailed analysis episode by episode of classic William Hartnell. I mean, I assume you're going to try and do the entire show, although that might take a while. <laughs> yeah, I think somebody worked out I will be 120 <laughs> if I keep going at this rate. <laughs> and you're doing the weekly episode watch with various guests, is that right? Yes, I, I basically sort of sent out... I started off, I sent SOSs out to, to sort of entertainment industry mm. chums, so comedians, actors, things like that, because I just thought... Um, well, I don't know. I just thought that would give it a touch of glamour that oh, I yes. might not—I uh, <laughs> might not provide myself. Uh, but I've—I've I've since opened it up a little bit, yeah. and there's been a sort of mixture. And I've got some quite interesting guests. I've got a lot of people also on a promise. Mm. So the story list has really dwindled, right. but but half of them I haven't actually had. Are they all fans? Though? Yeah. Oh, they are all there. So it's not like people you're actually helping them discover the show. It's literally no, no, yeah. no. It's ve- because they have to know. It's very much. It would be interesting about. actually to get somebody that's not seen the show before to watch mm. watch a story and choose their favourite things about yeah. it. But um, get them in uh, front of Time and the Rani. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although you see, everything is somebody's yes, favourite. I mean, I was I was astonished at how uh, somebody's only just claimed Genesis of the Daleks no. and the Green Death, which were I think the last two sort of real classics from the classic era that uh, that nobody had claimed. And yet, Underworld and Time Flight went like that. Ah. Uh, Although the guy that chose Underworld actually said the thing saying, sorry about the delay, I found this a real struggle. It's like, well, you chose it, mate. <laughs> so I think he was trying to be... Perhaps it's just you think you've got, you'll have something to say about something that's controversial. Mm. And, and the classics, it's very difficult to, um, you know, you can't sort of throw rocks at them very easily. Well, and, and I think it's, there are a lot of stories about which so much has already been said. Mm. That's true. You, I, in fact, I've just been asked to take part in a podcast that, called a wheezing groaning sound that, that is very funny but it's m- much more irreverent and ruder than mine and i said well can we choose a story that isn't a classic then because i will find it very hard to be funny <laughs> about genesis of the daleks or the seeds i could talk about them forever but i don't think i because i'm i'm on mine i've i've set the task of you know if you can't find anything nice to say don't say anything it's, it's very much a positive thing i just thought that would be a nice spin and a nice quest if you like it was a quest element to the podcast you don't want to sit in the corner sucking a sherbet lemon and sort of yeah not to look annoyed. <laughs> well quite often you listen i've listened to five minutes of various doctor who podcasts mm. where they say we're going to talk about this story now and then just it descends into what they think is rubbish about it yeah. and i think well 
it's very easy to to be negative about stuff and i, d- I don't live in a you know lovey-dovey world no. I, I do like a cynical sense of humor mm. but i do find it interesting how compelled sometimes doctor who fans are to say how terrible <laughs> doctor who is <laughs> well, and i could do that <laughs> yeah i don't know there's there's this interesting thing about being online that somehow people would say things they wouldn't necessarily say. I'm always fascinated by if I go onto the uh, the Duas, the Doctor Appreciation Society message board, that how many people are, are very angry on there. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's just very there's a weird. lot of anger on the internet. It's be- it's because we're expressing ourselves without eye contact and personal contact. And I'm being a slight hypocrite actually, mm. because you know when you read reviews, you only read. I, I would be much quicker to read a one star review than a five star mm. review. So in fact, I think I've got a very bad podcast model because I think people would prefer it if I was if I was heaping crap on something. Um, Do you think everybody's uh, just upset that they weren't asked to show run themselves? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's that, but I think that's internet wider. Mm. I remember talking to a friend of mine and, and saying I'd stumbled across a Doctor Who forum and it was mm. a den of vipers. Mm. And he went, oh, and he's into WWF. Yeah. And he said, oh, it's exactly the same in my yeah. world, you know. I, I think we think it's unique to Doctor Who. And I think the acting profession thinks that sort of bitchy, covert bitchiness and mm. little internecine wranglings and all that sort of thing. There's this cliche that it's, you know, it's particularly prevalent in the acting world. Mm. My mum's worked in staff rooms. My, <laughs> my sister's yes. worked in offices. I've, I've waited on tables. Yeah. It's exactly the same. It's just that people are interested in backstage stories. Mm. So we have this idea that the acting profession is, is you know, is, is rife with petty little squabbles oh, yeah. more so than any other workplace but it's it's i don't think it's true i'm always fascinated by the number of people who what they would say in the pub is something that if they said it on the television now they'd have to go on and apologize for and probably get cancelled for and it's kind of alarming isn't it well that's a whole new level i mean i certainly think and i've occasionally seen you know somebody hiding behind a, an anonymous handle mm. uh, you know being rude about say a friend of mine mm. and sort of gone do you want to come to the pub and say that yeah. about my friend to me? Because mm. I knock you out. Yeah. I think if you can only say it on an internet forum behind a, a handle, you're a, rather a, a sad creature. But by the same token, I do... Well, let's not get into the way that now there's a censoriousness, there's mm. a puritanism. Oh, yeah. Coming from my side, I'm a sort of typical, unsurprising, liberal lefty. Mm. I find there's a censoriousness and a desire for everybody to think the same as you that I think is bred of decency mm. but that has now metamorphosed into this sort of strange puritanism yes and i find it odd that anybody who thinks of themselves as liberal should be baffled that some people might have different ideas about how to make the world a better place and i think there is genuine bigotry and unpleasantness out there mm. that you don't have to sort of in bad faith deliberately misinterpret mm. what somebody has said in order to paint them as a devil mm. but that's a whole that's a whole new conversation yeah and stuff does get into people's heads as well when they read it don't they i mean that's a, a, yeah. so it's actually quite cruel in its own way and you and you come from comedy well as well don't you i mean comedy yeah. comedy does now have the does it still have the right to be cruel or was comedy always cruel or obviously doesn't be cruel because you wouldn't do it if it was would you really well, no, I think comedy can, and I think I think I I certainly think the the comedy circuit is not as it once was dominated mm. by you know a fairly homogenous group mm. of young white men mm. um, 
taming a baying crowd on a Friday mm. night. It's become much more interesting and eclectic, mm. and I think it means there's more of a variety of voices. And I think that's taken some doing, and and I think the circuit has taken a bit of time to readjust. But mm. I think it means there's not. I, I sort of welcome the fact that, and I, th- I I think because of the way that clubs can be sometimes, particularly mm. on a Friday and Saturday night you need to fight fire with fire mm. so often you'd have to go in with all guns blazing and and put somebody down mm. before they got out of hand there's a control element yes. for the sake of the rest of the audience i think the circuit is changing a little bit i think there's an appetite for less mm. combative stuff is it self-regulating do you think i think it is self-regulating mm. i mean there are a few comics now that that moan about being cancelled and mm. i don't I, and, I, and i don't think they they have been i think there is is less work out there mm. and tastes change i suppose less work out there tastes change uh certainly what is to, i th- i think what what is a shame is that there's less of a connection between the live circuit and television mm. It used to be you weren't your stripes on the live circuit, mm. and if you were good, you you ended up on television. Mm. Now you could almost leapfrog the live circuit because, and this again is bred from a good place. Mm. The the television is after more diverse voices. Yes. But it's almost like a famous actress or actor who suddenly appears at the royal court mm. and they go, and this is my first stage play. And you go, hang on, when did you earn your stripes? So you yes. sometimes yeah. see a comic on, have I got news for you? And my partner will go, who's that? And I go, I have no idea. Yeah. And you go, well, I've, you know, I'm on the circuit. I've been around a long time. I book a club. If I've not heard of this person, where the hell have they come from? <laughs> and it's almost like the, the bookers will, and I've, I've had it when I've emceed comedy mm. clubs in London. Somebody from a top agency will come in and they'll go, when is... Johnny No Bollocks on because I've only come to see him. And you go, well, why don't you watch everybody? Because you might discover somebody you didn't know you were looking mm. for, but they're not interested in that. No. They're interested in, in packaging. Yeah. Now, a lot of that comes from the fact that you know, the BBC might be looking at a panel show and go, because of the way that the, the circuit was and, mm. and maybe how the job appealed was made up entirely of mm. middle-aged white blokes. And they're quite rightly going, well, we need mm. some women. We need so ethnic minorities. So that means when those acts go and do an Edinburgh show that does quite well, those people are sought out by the TV and the radio in order that the next generation of those demographics coming up don't feel like the world of comedy isn't for them. Mm. And then you have more eclectic voices, and that is progress. Mm. So it might mean that occasionally somebody with 25 years' experience who is a white male Mm. might look at a show and go, that comic who's a woman a black person mm. or whatever has less experience than me mm. therefore they've taken my job well no they haven't no. because it it wasn't your job in the first place no. and comedians are sort of ten a penny the, the comedy circuit is full of very very mm. good comedians and if what it means is that an eclecticism is being put out there to encourage more people from different backgrounds to have their voices mm. heard that means comedy actually becomes more relevant and more interesting mm. so but I can see why people who might have thought 10 years ago that, you know, they had a natural progression for it to go from them then to there and then see somebody that they consider an upstart mm. doing better than them. Well, of course, everyone's human. That's going to hurt your ego. That's going to make you worry about your wallet uh, and worry about your career. Mm. And, and it may even be unfair because you've been going 20 years and they've been going mm. a year. But there's nothing fair in the world of entertainment. No. It's what the people paying for it want yeah, and if they're entertained they'll pay for it yeah well and if a tv producer wants to put out a program that has a more eclectic mix than comedy did 10 years mm. ago that's a perfectly reasonable and right thing to want to do mm. and nobody owes mm. 
an entertainer a living. I started this career thinking I would be a failure and being constantly surprised that anybody would want to pay me. Mm. So for me, anything is a bonus. And I do think there's a sense of entitlement. But that, again, mm. sort of comes from people who might have had yeah. sort of quite quick success. Every day um, you're not heading down the pit is a bonus. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, I think, also, because these days it does seem like the only way to get a book deal is to have been on telly, doesn't it, really? <laughs> Well, I think that's a shame. Mm. And I think that's where, you know, that's where the market, in inverted commas, mm. I think, fails mm. in a sense. And, and But we're all guilty of that. You know, if if, we, if you buy from Amazon, yeah. you can't then complain you don't get advanced for books anymore. No. And uh, I know a lot of artists who do both. Yeah. And I think that is a shame. You know, I think publishing is not the world that it was anymore, but people don't consume books in the same way. That's a, a separate discussion. You know, I, I, I mean, I listen to so many podcasts now and I sometimes have to catch myself and go, I really should Kofi that person or mm. Patreon that person because more and more what we do... Mm. It means the the gatekeepers aren't quite so powerful. Mm. So if you want to do a podcast about anything, you don't have to justify it no, to a commissioning editor. Yes. And actually, those that are excellent, it's like in the old days if you were self-published, mm. you know, or if you're an actor without an agent who just advertised in Spotlight. If you did something that got noticed, that you broke through mm. that way. I think there's more likelihood that you can do that now because it's a relatively more level playing field mm. you still if you have one of the platforms if you know if you do a podcast through the bbc mm. you're gonna inevitably get more exposure yes, and yes. more chance for people to listen to your podcast so it's, it's not quite that level but certainly it means that you can at least it can manifest <laughs> in a way that it couldn't in the older days yes. you couldn't make a radio program no. without a, a radio channel to yeah, broadcast it. Right. well you can now mm. it is fascinating to me because i know that you run a comedy club, don't you? But you also yeah. um, you also give people the opportunity who've never done it before to to give it a whirl. I believe. Yeah, I mean that's that's not as charitable as it sounds. I mean the, the comedy circuit is full of open spots, and there's mm. always been a spot. Everybody starts by doing ten minutes for free. I think what what we do that is slightly because we have I have an established club that's mm. been going twenty four twenty five mm. years, and it's a nice crowd. Yeah. And we have one slot that right. is for somebody we don't know. Right. But what it means is that quite often, and particularly in London, actually, we're in Manchester, the, mm. there's a real schism between the open spot circuit and the established <sighs> circuit. And crossing, going over that barrier is very, very difficult. And especially in London, because acts can double up or right. triple up. So there are, you know, the slots are actually being divided amongst us. There, there are more more people than I there thought are slots. for some reason I'd heard that you did self-confidence courses with people and then they did an evening of stand-up. Was that not... Uh, no, no. Although I have, the, there have been comedy courses that I've sort right. of gone and, and, and guested right. and talked on. But, but no, we give people a slot. We we do have a, a sort of nurturing remit. Right. But that is partially because we don't charge very much money. Yeah. One of the ways to do that is to have one slot where somebody's not getting paid anything. But we don't chew them up and spit them out. No. We maintain a relationship and we try to move people up the ladder. And also, we you know they know that they'll get a fair hearing from the crowd and I you know I discourage hecklers if there's any rowdiness there's not now the club's been going so long but in the old days I would soak that up you know it's like if you've got something to say you say it to me you know mm. and that soon um, dealt with it's funny I remember many many years ago going to a poetry night at the old frog and bucket 
and oh god and yeah just, yeah just being absolutely astonished that i was in a in a public area and people were arguing about poetry i just thought that was just ah uh, yeah an astonishing thing really in, in the depths of manchester the frog was a great hub of creativity it's now it's it's a, still a very good club but it, it's a sort of rowdy friday night saturday mm. night they wouldn't have a poetry night there now but when it gosh when i when it was when it was back on uh, was it newton street yeah. God, i remember my second my second open spot there, Carolina Hearn was in the front row, you know. I mean, it was a real great, great hub of, uh, of creativity, the frog, yeah. It's a Manchester institution. So do you want to talk a bit about malarkey? Because you've managed to yeah, keep well, it going I... through all this, haven't you? I'm very proud of us, yeah. We, I mean, it started 24... It was, we celebrated its birthday as we recorded, it, as we recorded this last week, mm-hmm. uh, 24 years old, which isn't bad. So I worked out if, if it lasts 24 years again, I will be 71. Wow. <laughs> um, you'll, be, you'll, be, was... you'll be doing the Frankie Howard bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wheeling you on. <laughs> Uh, and it, it was a bit like Doc Two. It was, you know, I, I thought, well, I'll get eight weeks out of it, and I'll, mm. you know, I'll get some regular comparing. That'll make me better. But I never expected it to succeed. I think because I've always expected to fail. Yeah. It means I, I do put the work in, mm. and and I sort of gra- I grafted at it, and and gradually, you know, a team built over the years. Mm. So now it's not just me, and I have uh, I have some very able young people who work on a largely voluntary basis. That's the other thing mm. is we charge so little for it that that sometimes the guy on the door who do the tech get paid and, mm. and sometimes they don't mm. ditto, ditto me mm. but we've always paid the acts yes and when lockdown occurred of course because it's all young people they went oh well it's all right Toby. we could do it on twitch and i went oh, well i don't know what that means <laughs> you immediately lit a Maygray pipe and said well, <laughs> what is this twitch of which you speak yeah <laughs> absolutely but within a week because mm. i think lockdown was announced on the monday or even the tuesday and so that night i recorded some stuff on my phone mm. And we put it on the website and we and we linked to YouTube sets of the acts that would have been played. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so did a sort of people could piece together the gig from the comfort of their own home. And that was quite fun. And I was quite pleased that we'd reacted so quickly. But then, you know, they said that the guy said, no, no, well, we can actually do this a bit more formally. And within that week, we had an online show and we broadcast for the whole of lockdown, all three lockdowns, because it looked like we were going to go back into the building. And then that first cessation of lockdown itself ceased and we were back into it. So but we've been back live now, I think, 11 weeks, wow. but we still do the online show on the first... We, we did the online show on the Tuesday when the live show would have been, and mm. we now do the online show first Sunday of the month because what I didn't realise... There's a couple of things I didn't realise. One, that actually because of our demographic, there are a lot of people who are perhaps not quite so socially robust mm. or not people who necessarily enjoy spending time in pubs mm. and it's a necessary evil to enjoy the comedy night to go to a pub, mm. who loved watching it from their own home and loved the idea that you can type into Twitch and sort of you know heckle by text, as it were. But then they, they don't heckle, they join in and they're, they're a community and, and actually they talk to each other. Mm. And so you've got people talking to each other who might not have met and it's a really, it reflects the club because they're a positive bunch anyway. Very rarely was there somebody who was a bit of an arse you know because there's just no place for it they don't get much of a reaction and they soon disappear which is lovely and also what i hadn't realized because of streaming services and things like that you know the future Mm. as they tell us it is i'll just get me silver jumpsuit yes yeah yeah i I, so yeah i got leapt off my hoverboard to do the show and (laughs) and thought well no why would anybody watch this there's netflix Mm. there's you know everyone's got dvd everyone has every piece mm. of entertainment at their disposable why would they choose i can understand choosing to go out to a live comedy show because mm. being in a room with a stand-up is very different to watching it on the telly yeah. that watching four comics sitting in front of their computer mm. ye- yelling into a zoom 
is a compromised version of of what we do and people won't like it and people and people really did and how this is weird because i imagine i mean i've never stood on a stage and had that immediate feedback but i imagine it's you know the difference between theater and performing for television and film is how do you actually get the power the inner energy if you like to actually do yes. that without that feedback well there's two ways of doing it so mm. i've done i've done online gigs for people like sarah millican she did a new material night mm. every week and she actually had the audience in the room and she had a brilliant tech guy who who sort of made sure that he faded people out if there was an idiot but just kept on top of it and it was a really slick operation so you actually had the audience mm. but i found that really hard because people don't watch in the same way at home as they do in a club so people will go and make a cup of coffee or they'll stroke their cat or they'll do their knitting so if you want if you, if, if, yeah if you haven't 100 percent got their attention and they're not deliberately being rude it's mm. just how you conduct yourself mm. in your own house you conduct yourself differently so i found that really hard i didn't look at the screen in the end mm. although the laughter was welcome we decided not to have the audience in mm. at excess so your performance it's a bit like when you do loose ends mm. there is laughter but it's from the five or six performers scattered about right. who are also doing the show but i i think i was at an advantage because i do a radio show mm. so i'm used to doing monologues with no feedback whatsoever <laughs> so i just sort of motor mouth and i would occasionally bring ros in ros is that is she works on the door at mm. excess but she she runs the the, the sort of technical stuff yeah. of the of the online show but the other comics were pretty good and most comics are pretty supportive so you'd get bits of laughter from them and that's sort of what worked for us and i think early on it was really interesting seeing how people tried to reinvent the wheel a few some very good comics came on and went well what i'm going to do is i'm going to do this thing but i'm going to like pretend the zoom is going wrong because that'll be like really fun and and after about six weeks people just went i'm just going to talk and do my set <laughs> <laughs> and that was much better i think people tried to overcompensate and what you do is you just you know you do the material slightly differently you pitch it slightly differently um you you perhaps take more you don't need stuff that's so punchline heavy. You can do sort of slightly. I mean, Rob Rouse did racist chickens, but he's he's a special case and is insane. Uh, and it was terribly, terribly funny. So I've just got visions of a kind of up to date Norman Collier. <laughs> uh, Rob is so good. He is. It's so good, um, uh, but he did race his chickens. Oh. But as I say, Rob is a, a special case. But but it soon settled into mm. it's just a. I think you have instincts as a performer, and mm. people soon learn how to pitch it. And some comics excelled doing online shows, and in just the same way as you don't do a one-hour Edinburgh mm. show in the same way as you do a twenty-minute Friday night comedy club set. You don't do a ten-minute no. online set in the same way you do a ten-minute art centre set or, or whatever and we added an element to it we f we figured it was a bit much to ask anybody to do more than 10 minutes mm. but because we insisted on paying everybody and that's a bit i am proud of is that we paid four comics mm. a good wage every tuesday night um so we did our little bit to you know fund the arts as it were and the show is free mm. because of the way that twitch works so we we just asked for donations mm. and we actually uh, it's sometimes amortized over so if we had james acaster on a gig and had more people you know sometimes the money we got from that paid for a gig four weeks later when we had fewer viewers but nonetheless we managed to pay people every week i have visions of the four of you still standing on the stage handing a yellow rectangle around so whenever each one of you is speaking but i imagine it's not done like that at all <laughs> no it was you know it's one at a time and what we also did was i then interviewed 
the comic right. after they'd done their 10 minutes. So it's 10 minutes of performance, then 10 minutes wow. of... Behind the scenes. Like, behind the scenes or banter. <laughs> it depends what mood the comic was in. Mm. So sometimes it was very instructive. Sometimes it got quite serious. And sometimes we just dicked about, depending on the on the comic. Yeah. Uh, that meant the onus was on, on me. I mean, I was, uh, you know, if I couldn't really take a break because mm. I'd have to watch the set to ensure that mm. I'd got questions. And then I'd have to question mm. them. But because it's a sort of, it's a gig that is, is liked by comedy appreciators, mm. uh, I think going behind you can afford to go behind the scenes a little because it's of yeah. interest to people and again it's not feeling the pressure to produce something that is slick and comedic for the whole of its running time you know we created our own little corner because when when you think back to the 80s and the the comic strip and all that kind of thing they very much in the end changed the way mainstream television went in the sense that the domestic sitcom they were mocking it so much it sort of altered it sort of changed because of the input of the, quotes alternative comedians. Do you feel that that kind of what you're doing now will have a similar impact or not? Do you think it's changed anyway? Well, I certainly think the way that we produce stuff is changing, mm. I think. Democratisation uh, of it, to a certain uh, Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, and we, we, we touched on the fact that sort of different voices are coming mm. through and, and, and how important that is but nothing beats experience and i think there are a whole load of sort of very experienced veteran comics mm. who've been of great service to the live circuit who don't get perhaps seen in in the wider media as much as they they deserve yeah. in a way because with the best way in the world it does take you six or seven years generally to get good mm. and, and that is born of experience however if the live and i sometimes i sometimes listen to what passes for for good that's put out by some of the mm. media and I think oh, that you know the people making this don't go to comedy clubs because mm. they don't they clearly don't know what's out there and I think that's a problem in that a lot of the media have stopped going to live comedy mm. and I think we underestimate the richness of the live circuit so I would hate for the internet to destroy live comedy but actually our numbers at the live show are, I think have been revitalized mm. almost if we just carried on going the way we were I think I'm not sure if this August, say, we'd have had as many people as we did have no. this August. I think it made people appreciate what they've got. I think it made people seek out perhaps more eclectic midweek gigs yeah. rather than doing their comedy just on a Friday or Saturday night, whatever. But I think you have to work to stay relevant. And it's it's funny. I've seen a few comics that from back in the day would have been guaranteed headline acts were mm. brilliant, brilliant comics. And I've seen recently and go, oh, that, that's a bit old fashioned. Mm. Oh, that doesn't quite work. And I said, that's interesting. Why do they think that that? materials mm. okay to do and i said because and ros said but it's because you compare to quite young people mm. every week so you probably moved with the times in in the way that mm. some of these guys maybe haven't but also you have to make it habit forming don't you I mean the, the performing has to be a habit to get people to come in and sometimes if you probably out of the loop for a while you kind of lose that or do you yeah i think maybe and i also think i mean i'm quite lucky i think that my comic persona is which is based in fact is of being slightly curmudgeonly old geezer who doesn't really get new things uh, and, and that was quite funny when i was in my 20s but i think it's more of a natural fit now i always say i was born 40 so yeah i know what you mean <laughs> yeah exactly yeah you know I, I never minded that i might not play romeo because i've got my eye on falstaff mm. you know that's i'm hoping to be a late bloomer well but yeah. opportunity <laughs> opportunity knocks you know Absolutely. But I think you have to, again, I think, and I've seen some really good people who've perhaps had disappointments mm. start to be a little bit bitter. Mm. And it's so easy to be bitter in this game. And I know of many 
comics who've excelled on the live circuit who I think deserved a mm. shot on this BBC show or who deserved a shot mm. on that who haven't. And I think it's very easy to get a bit of... I mean, God, I wasn't even a talking head on the Doctor Who documentaries mm. at the 50th and you saw comics who you know never watched Doctor Who yeah. on it. You go, oh, come on. Why is he there? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but what yeah, you have to do is you have to look at it and go, but the audience at home don't care. Mm. So you can either spend your energy dying on that yeah. hill or you can just keep doing stuff. And it's hard to be positive. It can be very wearing. It's a merciless business. But Ray Lunnan, the actor who I know you've discussed because he was in Yellow Thread Street. I remember Ray, a quote from Ray that was in one of his obituaries, not the one I wrote. Mm. It was a very good obit in The Independent where he said, I've never complained about the industry because nobody ever told me it was supposed to be fair. Mm. And I thought that was a really good attitude to go. There's so much unfairness in this business so there is mm. there just is it's a fact of life and i've seen people be consumed yeah. by bitterness and i don't want to be that guy no. yeah, that's not saying i don't get bitter feelings no. i don't get jealousy i don't have thwarted ambitions but i also know that the world doesn't owe me a living mm. and i've got a graft and the thing is that the thwarted ambitions may if you actually got those you might not have had the opportunities to do the things that you are doing so you know yes maybe that and also it's a terrible thing to say to a performer it's not about you i sometimes look at mm. a program and go why wasn't i seen for that part mm. i'd have been brilliant at that part mm. i know the casting director knows mm. my work mm. why didn't they think of me and you think it's because they hate you or they think you're shit uh, because you're awful mm. and actually it might just be on the day they didn't think of you mm. because do you know what the world doesn't revolve <laughs> around you and that that is quite humbling but it's also quite sobering <laughs> And I thought when I was younger, I thought the answer was to be angry. Mm. And you see lots of, I see lots of young comics now on Facebook being angry. Mm. And it's a good defense mechanism because if you're angry against the world, the world is unfair. Mm. And therefore anything that might threaten your self-esteem is an act of unfairness. Mm. And unfairness is wrong. And if you're angry at what is wrong, that feels like a righteous crusade. But actually it turns people off because then you have an opportunity to meet with a producer and you and you go, and I wasn't in that thing. And they think, God, they're angry. I don't want to work with them whereas what actually what you want to do is just you want the first impression somebody has of you is to be somebody who's nice who people want to work with so i think the anger thing doesn't work and i think i made mistakes perhaps early on in my career that i thought i was some sort of crusader mm. whereas i probably just came across as, as somebody who was a bit unnecessarily angry well, maybe, but, uh, you know i think in the end it's funny quite often we end up talking about people who people think always say oh they were lovely and you think yeah people talk about the lovely people they remember the lovely people. They remember the people being... I, yes, although uh, they don't necessarily employ them. I did, I, I <laughs> He's was too doing lovely thing. for this. <laughs> yeah, well, I did, I did do a thing where I said I'm not sure I would advise people to do stuff for young producers. I used to do read-throughs and, mm. and stuff in my own time free. I'd be very nice and helpful mm. for people who then, when they became powerful, mm. have never given me a job. No. And you think, hang on, you were desperate for me then. Mm. Why don't you want me now? And I think part of it is because they've already worked with you. Mm. And if you're a producer, you want to forge new relationships or you don't want to work with somebody you worked with when you were a junior because that reminds you of when you were not an important mm. and now you're an important producer. You want to hang around with the stars. Well, the stars aren't the guy that was available when you needed somebody. And I think there is an element of that as well. At the end of the day, I think the thing, and I say this to comedians as well, about on stage is you can double think and overthink and guess how you're supposed to play the game. And at the end of the day, the least frustrating way of doing it is just to be yourself and hope for yeah. the best because there's nothing worse than not getting a job. Because I remember once 
I thought, right, I'm not going to be, I'm going to go in and I'm going to be effervescent and confident and popular mm. and a million dollars because that's, well, that's what I see the successful people doing. And a few people have said, you don't, you know, you don't push yourself enough. You have to have more confidence. So I went in with this sort of faux confidence and they just said, yeah, that didn't work. And I thought I'd rather have not got the job mm. being me. Yes than got the job being a false and not very convincing version of myself. One of the reasons I don't push myself is because I don't want people to think I'm a cocky git. So when I didn't get that job, because they thought I was a cocky git, it was like, well, I'm, I'm not. And they thought I was, and that's because I was, a, and that's even more frustrating. And I, I say that to comics on stage as well, because loads of comics go through lots of different manifestations mm. before about eight years in going, oh no, I just need to be myself. Mm. And then you're a much better comic, even if it's a heightened version mm. of yourself, because the audience can smell artifice. Mm. And I used to reject the fact that I would sound a bit middle-class and I was a bit mm. pedantic about grammar and mm. all those sorts of things because I thought that wouldn't sell to a baying Friday night crowd. Mm. And actually, when I got good was when I realised, oh no, they think that of me anyway, so I will embrace it mm. to show that it's not a weakness because audiences sniff weakness and stamp on yes. it. And two, it means that I'm doing jokes about myself. So before you can say you're a middle-class wanker, I've done a much better joke about <laughs> me being a middle-class wanker than you will ever say. And that actually then garners respect from the audience, even if you've taken the piss out of yourself. Yeah. And I have to say, you talked about cruelty earlier. The butt of my jokes is usually me. Yes which is how I can then get away with being mock superior about things in other circumstances, because actually, usually the joke is on is on me. So we look back on the last year and you've obviously managed to keep the club going and you've been podcasting like there's no tomorrow. Um, yeah. Did the lockdown, did the being at home affect you in any other ways? I mean, in the end, I mean, I know you you write the obits, so you're obviously still writing. I, I wonder where you get all your energy from, because you're still writing the obits. You're still doing the, the value-added material for things like, you were on the Evil of the Daleks, weren't you? The um... Yeah, I'm on the commentary mm. for that, yeah. Was that done remotely or was yeah yeah i that will be a thing i would be interested to see if we ever do in a studio again mm. i think there are certain studios in soho i wonder if they're going to go out of business because i've done radio four plays i've done voiceovers and i've done doctor who uh, value-added material all from uh cupboard in the corner of my living was room was this all stuff that you think might not have happened had you been working normally actually has it been an advantage to you to have that set up at home uh no i it was stuff that, you're working at more or less the same rate you always were it was largely for the same people right. i just didn't have to travel for it mm. and as we've discovered on for our tuesday nights with comedians if suddenly comedians are used to not leaving the house they're not going to and so i wonder one of the radio plays i did i wonder if maybe they'd have got that cast mm. perhaps if people had had to leave the house but that was already starting to happen i've done radio plays with both derek jacoby and bill nye mm. without meeting them mm. Both of their roles were narrator roles, though, so I think that was slightly different. So, so nobody was having to. Well, we always like it when Charles Paris gets work. Uh, yeah, yeah. But nobody was having to fake yes. uh, performing to anybody, as it were. But I think that might start to happen now. The value-added material, you know, we wouldn't have had Tina Packer mm. on the Web of Fear commentary because mm. she lives in America. Mm. If suddenly somebody living in America wasn't a barrier anymore, mm. so in a way, we got a better product. Mm for the Web of Fear commentary than we would have had with it. You know, it just wouldn't have occurred to us. We'd have crossed it. We'd have gone, well, we can't do her. We might have actually, we might have done a separate Skype track yes. for one episode. We might have done that, but that would have been, for quite a long while now, we've done more than we've been budgeted for mm. because we're fans and we yeah. want to go the extra mile. So we might have done that, but having her in, in with everybody else, which was really good mm. fun, we certainly wouldn't have done. So I think, yeah, I wonder if commentaries will ever have everybody in the same room 
again, I'm not sure. But I was lucky. I, I'm glad you think I'm busy. I think I'm really lazy. <laughs> I have many days where I go, why haven't I done anything today? I've got so many projects on the boil that I've done. I've got so many scripts in my head that I haven't mm. written. And I, I sometimes at the end of the day will watch and do a commentary on an episode of Doctor Who to at least go to bed and go, well, at least I've done something yes. today. I think I procrastinate and I think I'm lazy. So if I give the impression that I'm very busy and productive, I'm I'm very happy about well, that. In, in a year I... <laughs> that, that where people have been, well, feeling perhaps that they didn't do much or whatever. I mean, you managed to get your first television play. Is that right? That's just uh, well, it was an episode of Biff and Chip, mm-hmm. the CBeebies live action series, which had actually started prior to lockdown. Mm-hmm. And then when lockdown happened and the filming date was put off, they said, so, um, you know, we can afford to take our time on the rewrites. So I, I mean, I did. I, I don't know if I should admit this. It's a 12 minute script. Mm. I think I did 18 drafts <laughs> of that because it's a new series, yes. you see. And the way that new series work is you develop it mm. with the development producers, but they don't know what the eventual execs are going to want. Mm. But execs are much more expensive. So they get hired quite late in the day. So the development producers have to be slightly psychic Mm. to prepare groundwork that they think is going to be the foundations that the execs want to build on but it might be that the execs then come in and go no no we want to do this like this this like this this like this so your first few drafts are speculative anyway because Mm. you're you're literally throwing it into the dark Mm. but i i mean with anything like that again my overwhelming sense of potential failure means that I very much treat any project like that because I feel like a bit of a pretender mm. as a learning curve. And and my friend said, you were so nice when they kept asking you for those rewrites. And I said, <laughs> well, I want, I want to be nice to work with. Mm. And at the end of the day, they're the people that want the script. So I may as well give them what they want mm. and learn about what it is that people want while I'm doing it. So I treated it very much as a learning experience and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was nice having my name on the telly on a thing. And they seemed to like the script as well. And I was, as I say, I quite enjoyed the process. I always think I'm two sniffs off waiting on tables again. So uh, <laughs> if somebody's paying me to do a script, I will ah, yeah, do it. But sitting in your own home, somehow you managed to get signed on for a broadcasting institution. <laughs> well, do you know what? I've had my fair share of bad luck and missed opportunities <laughs> and never quite being in the right place at the right time mm. and always feeling like I was tapping on the window looking in. Mm. And so I make no apologies for a bit of good luck going my way <laughs> for once as a result of an awful global pandemic that ruined a lot of people's lives. Yes. In that, yes, I joined the cast of Coronation Street by necessity, really. And they filmed it in your house. Is that right? Well, to a certain extent. in fact, it would be more accurate to say, no, to a, an entire extent, <laughs> but it would be more accurate to say rather than they filmed it in that, I filmed oh, it in our house. So you're a director so as well what, now. <laughs> I, was, I was wardrobe, I was content, I was everything. Wow. Because the listener may not know my partner Shirley Houston is an actress who has been in Coronation Street for 10 11 years Mm -hmm. and she in real life is a wheelchair user so uh, her character in Corrie is a a wheelchair user and she has a compromised immune system and she wasn't ever she wasn't going to be able to get to the studio and Corrie blessed them were very mindful of the fact that disabled people's stories in lockdown weren't being told Mm. and that you know if their valued cast member wasn't getting out and was 
fearful of getting out and was health was at greater risk and was sort of being overlooked in, in the media those stories weren't being told but well this is what a, a soap opera does i'm full of admiration for the way that they've done it mm. and for the actually for the outside of the story level of, of the level of care they have shown mm their employee slash colleague mm. uh, I've been hugely impressed by because television can be cynical and, and merciless mm. and I've, I was very impressed uh, so anyway they sort of started saying to her well look if, if you can't if you, we can't get you in uh, we need to think of ways because they've had you mm. know people doing stuff on Zoom and one of the writers at the meeting who we happen to know mm. who's been a writer on the show for 20 years said well Zoom's one thing but she said you know that her partner's an actor so why don't we why don't we film some stuff, you know, use her house as the flat and he can be this sort of next door neighbour mm. um, who for the first time has noticed this person mm. living, living, you know, and there's a comment there about, you know, whether we notice and look after our communities and particularly the disabled people mm. in our community. I mean, at this stage, they didn't even know if they could film it in the house and the, and the, and the technical guys came around and they were talking about setting up a unit in our back garden and or having a van outside mm. and big cables and all of that sort of thing. And so in the meantime, while they were working that, they, they sent us some cameras and we, and this writer wrote a, a script mm for us to do a test ah. and also you know so that the producers could take a look at me because yeah. they weren't going to take it on trust i might have been awful <laughs> um but wrote me a really good character yes. and wrote me a really good script uh, that i was able to capitalize mm. upon uh, and so ostensibly to test the equipment mm. we did this scene and we filmed it in different ways and we lit it in different ways and we we basically chose a corner of the house our house is quite open plan mm. and a mixture of old and, and new mm. so we got a corner that we figured would fit seamlessly into the the visual landscape did you of have to redecorate uh well i moved my equator mass martian out of the way for starters <laughs> <laughs> and a few tardises put under the sofa no they're just character quirk surely <laughs> and and there's legal there's legal stuff as well because yes. you've got pictures up that yeah. everything that's even in the background has to be clear yes. so what they did eventually once we'd done that and they said okay well we might need to light it a bit better mm -hmm. and blah, blah 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 and they eventually wrote these scenes that were a mixture of being on zoom and then cutting back to the flat four episodes for me lovely lovely mm -hmm. lovely um, what they did was they sent us the equipment sanitized a week before mm -hmm. and i set up the camera uh, and we were on a link to the thing but yeah so what they did as part of that was they said you know what that they sent some pictures because for all the characters in curry they have some pictures to go in their houses so they sent pictures of shes in character yeah. and of the actors that have played her family at various points mm. and we sort of had those dotted about so in relation to the street where is the flat well it's it's round the corner. So Izzy lives right. round the corner from Coronation Street. And there is an outside area in the street, this sort of little garden courtyardy bit that is the outside of Izzy's flat. Right. So it's it's actually part of the street set, but it's not literally on Coronation right. Street. It's round the corner. It's part of the extended... So you now uh, know that behind those doors build. is actually your living room. It is, is our living room, yeah. And, right. <laughs> yeah. Does that mean and, that at some and, point they're going to have to build your living room? Well, I guess so. Or Izzy will have to be seen in her flat everywhere apart from <laughs> where she usually sat during lockdown. I don't know how they're going to do it. That's but it was really interesting. To, and as a television an amateur television historian mm. i liked the idea of being part of an historical oh, shoot yeah. I, in the sense I was that going to say a to soap you. opera has never done that before yes that's true but i was actually going to say to you i know that you had been on coronation street two or three times before in the yeah in the dim and distant as it were in the, yeah doing, were they all one-offs or yeah they were all saying yeah so i was the victim i was going to say to you wedding what was it like, like joining that. an institution i know a national broadcasting institution but of course you were doing it in your own house, weren't you? So, 
Yes, I, it, and in fact, it, yeah. it probably helped with the nerves a little mm. bit. That much like when I'm MC, one of the reasons I like emceeing is mm. because you hide behind a job. Mm. So although you are supposed to be funny, you also have to calm the audience down if they're rowdy, bring them up if they're quiet. You have to get the acts on. You have to explain the rules. So then the jokes, there's less pressure on the jokes really. Mm. And in a way, because I was having to set up the cameras, because we were on a on a feed, so all the crew were in in ITV studios, mm. and we had a lovely director called Mickey Jones, who I have to say gave me license to give the performance that mm. I, I eventually gave. He really gave me a lot of confidence. He was really kind, and I'm I'm very grateful. An actor's director, very much. But because I was I was moving the camera two inches to the left, or turning the light up by thirty percent, or changing the position of the chair because hang on, we got a glimpse of that wall that's not the right wall or whatever. By the time that they called action, or I called action, the acting was was almost a relief. Yes, and I think I probably gave a better performance because of that because I was I was probably slightly more natural. And so, by the same token, the fact that we were doing something that was going to be seen by millions of viewers. Because mm. I think part of us thought, they still might not use this. Mm. And they did keep those scenes to a minimum. The original scripts before we filmed then came back and they were shorter. And mm. I think they weren't sure they could sustain more than sort of 30, 40 second mm. scenes just because it's, you know, it's very different. It's not in a great big studio with all the equipment mm. that they have there. And I actually think they fitted it in very, very seamlessly and impressively but i think i think they were right to be cautious mm. but it meant that because we were doing something so unusual and we were still spending time with the only two people we'd spent the whole of lockdown with which was each other mm. it was only when we'd done it that we went bloody hell that's good in six weeks time that's, that's gonna be broadcast <laughs> to the, yeah. you know to, to the high, high highest viewing audience there is in some ways it's like you've gone national with your home movies to a certain extent yeah really <laughs> interesting and as I say, I mean, I've been used to Shez being in the show, but that doesn't really affect me. And, so, and you know, I still just walk the dog in the park and keep my head down. And, and because I've, I've not been out, you know, I've, I've not been recognised or anything. So it's delightful for me because it means I've been doing sort of good work with none of that extra stuff. But it's also come when I'm 48 rather than when I'm, yeah. you know, in my 20s and would be in a pub or whatever. Yeah. And we're still observing lockdown because we're both still immunocompromised. Yeah. So I, I only do Excess Monarchy on a Tuesday, Coronation Street when I'm in and walking the dog that's those are the only times i go out but so those four episodes went well and and i thought well that's nice and that's that's all i like thought you've, it was you've done be. about as much as joanna lumley did in 1960 whatever or whatever it is you've, you've done that yeah, many yeah and yeah. but then got a message going well we know shares can't come in but we've got this storyline coming up for a traffic warden that was going to be a different character mm. a new character how but do you feel about a, making a, him a traffic warden <laughs> yeah how, well how do you feel about coming in and doing more so i suddenly and that that was nice for again you've got to bring your own ego mm. into it because it's it's lovely working with shares and very nice mm. but you know you know that there'll be people going well he only got that part because he's a partner yeah. well yeah i did not in the sense that it was nepotism it was bread of necessity mm. there was literally no way they could have done it but also i like to think they wouldn't have let me do it if that tape had been poor yeah. and they certainly wouldn't have gone we're going to take that character and give him more to do that was not planned for a totally different storyline mm. that's absolutely nothing to do with shares so i'm on all this week mm. with sally who is wonderful mm. and it's and i've been in coronation street more than Cheryl Lee has this month so that for my own self-esteem that's ascended beyond partner of actress that's in it gets job is now actor who did a good job on that first set has now been, been rewarded with with yeah with with extra stuff 
Um, so that's nice. Because, I mean, that in itself is a fascinating development. But did you have to do all the... I mean, do you have to do things like the makeup and stuff yourselves as well? Yeah. I mean, there yeah. was literally no production crew with you at all? No, nobody. Wow. And she can't reach anything from a shelf, no. so I literally, I did it all. No, I, I, <laughs> and I'd say we did it together, but no, we didn't. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> She'd occasionally tell me what to do, but, uh, and, but I were, did were it. Were the cam- cameras <laughs> remotely controlled in any way or anything like that? There was literally... No, no, it's, no it's, they were locked off, sh- wow. locked off shots, but we linked via a web link yeah. so they could see what the camera was seeing and they'd go could you move it two inches to the left and, we, and the angles that we could achieve were very very tight mm. because of the geography of the house and and typically i had to put the camera in the corner where i built my sound booth so i had to dismantle that <laughs> which was a pain but there was only certain angles that you could get without the house revealing that it's actually a, mm. a much larger open plan house for a wheelchair mm. than a flat you know mm. in a in a complex in coronation street so we we were very very limited with the angles that we had mm. and the furniture and all, all of that and they wanted as much variety as possible so we we shot the hell out of that sort of corner mm. but yeah no uh, I literally had to move the camera every time we changed. So it's a bit the like having your own theatre in, in, to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. And we were, you know, we had we had radio mics on, which were transmitting mm. over there, and we had lights. But the lights now are so portable; they're mm. these sort of flat canvas things that you that you turn up a dial on the back, mm. and you you know the lighting guy was like, "The light on the left, can you turn it up? What's it on now?" And I go, <laughs> and "63 percent." They go, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, yeah." No, actually, they 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 gave us very very good instructions. It was a bit nerve wracking, but we had a couple of we had time for a couple of dry runs so that on the day, and they'd given us they set aside a whole day for us to do those first four episodes yeah. and we came in massively ahead of schedule so uh, i think they were pleasantly surprised but i was just remembering i was thinking of the itv unions back in the 70s <laughs> oh yeah absolutely nobody <laughs> nobody moving anything yeah well that's very true uh, i think my beck two membership i think i think i've qualified but you know we took it very seriously yes. and we made sure that we knew exactly what we were doing so that we didn't hold up. That was partially self-preservation because yeah. I didn't want to be pissing about with the camera when I'm trying to give a performance as a, as a new character. But TV you know. companies are scrabbling around trying to find new ways of doing this sort of thing. So in, in that sense, the actual isolation bubble aspect of it was a goldmine as, as a story opportunity, wasn't it? I've been really impressed by how seriously they've taken it. I, I love the fact that they kept going mm. and they didn't have to have a break. And it was very interesting because I had very sort of highfalutin ideas going, well, well, maybe what they should do is what, what the soap opera channel should do, what EastEnders should have done was just do little two-hander plays, mm. you know, and, and make it like little individual stories mm. and stretch the format. And actually, that's what they did with the Archers. Mm. They did, you know, they did monologues mm. and they did a, And I remember talking to, there's an old couple down the road whose shopping I did during lockdown. Mm. That was the only other time I went out was to get the shopping for the elderly couple down the road so they didn't have to and i didn't just do that because they're called ian and barbara <laughs> um, and, and i said you know this is what they should be doing with the soaps don't you think and they they said well we've been listening to the archers and they've been doing these things where they have these monologues and it's not for us <laughs> and i thought this is actually why yeah. soaps and things stick to a particular formula because that's what people like and that's what people want and actually if you stretch if you try to do something different too often that's not what people have tuned in for actually well television is um, a habit thing for people but it's also we forget i think that people don't really know how it happens a lot of people think it's just you are real people even now people still i mean i know probably not as much these days but they detach from the fact that your actors acting apart but actually just think this is real life to a certain extent and so real life wouldn't be two people sitting in a room for them would it no 
no, or real life not. for most of us would be two people sitting in a room perhaps <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I thought what was very clever with Shez's story was that they sort of highlighted what may not have occurred to people as, as to mm. why disabled people in particular might be worried about coming out mm. and, and sort of life imitating art a little bit there because their actress had been denied to them they thought well let's siphon off some of the reality of that and apply it to the character it is difficult that people nowadays seem to think there's a certain amount of normality and you know you're still vulnerable so it's kind of difficult yeah, to argue well, that that's... and that is a good way to get that message across isn't it yeah absolutely that yeah you may think well what doesn't matter if i don't wear a mask on public transport yeah well look around and see how many people you are mm. around you are vulnerable oh the vulnerable people aren't out because they're still staying at home because people like you aren't wearing masks you know it's 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 very we're in a strange kind of limbo and then, of course, you now, in character, walk to the very cobbles. Yes, so, uh, you know, door-to-door. Uh, Ticketed a few famous cars, no doubt. <laughs> well, yes, well, I was in, as we record this in last night's episode, I was having a, a confrontation with a councillor who I ticketed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sally had encouraged me to do mm-hmm. it. So, yes, I've, and I, actually, I've been, I've been on the cobbles. Mm-hmm. I've been in the bistro. I've been in the rovers. I've been in Roy's roles. I, I should have a little map of the studio. You know, like people sort of mark off where they've been in the world. I've covered most of the uh, key locations. It's a, it's in, a form of immortality, Corrie. isn't it, really? I mean, yeah, you know, you, once you've actually been in vision on Coronation Street, you basically know it's going to be seen forever. And it's lovely, actually, having been in it as sort of one-offs, mm. you know, solicitor here, mm. a doctor there, to actually have a character... Mm that's making an engagement with people, isn't it? I mean, people I mean, people seem to like the character. He's a lovely character. He's good fun, and he's very amiable and quite eccentric. And, and A singular man is how he was described in, in the original script that we were given. A singular man. <laughs> and is, Does he have and, a pleasant a open face, by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> and he has a particular kind of coronation street uh, vernacular mm. he's he's in a he's in a long line of sort of singular men who've inhabited the cobbles i was thinking only the other day i mean it must be very strange i mean because this program's got a 60 uh, there aren't that many programs with a 60 year history i know i know of another one no but um, yeah yeah but uh, <laughs> you know to have actually grown up watching characters i mean have you actually met any of the current icons or are they still very much being kept away from well i met bill roach before, because mm. when I was the vicar at Curly's mm. wedding, they sat the vicar on the table with the older characters. Mm. So I was on a table with Anne Kirkbride, Eileen Derbyshire and William Roach for a whole day. And Anne Kirkbride mm. brought a game to play with her and a fart machine, bless her, <laughs> that she stuck under other people's <laughs> tables and had a lovely day with those three. And I and I remember thinking, I can't think of anyone better to be sat on it for, for me as a sort of actor geek. Yeah. You know, and I, I was talking to them about Arthur Lowe and things mm. like that because they'd all worked back in the 60s. And so, of course, they were quite delighted that instead of going, uh, uh, you know, uh, j- just asking sort of generic yeah. questions, the fact that I was talking to them as actors from a particular generation, mm. um, they were absolutely delighted by. So we had a lovely old day. Uh, and I've met Bill a few times. I've been at a few charity gigs mm. that Shez has been at because he does loads of I know it's a cliche, but he does loads of, puts yeah. a lot of his energy into supporting charities and he's a very good man and still in an amazing form. I think he's 90, isn't he? He's 89. Like I know he's like, uh, I know he's, well, I mean, considering he's in episode one. Yeah. Which is what, so, December so, 1960, isn't it? So, yeah. 60, yeah. But of course, because of the way the street is at the moment, mm. you're in your dressing room away from everybody. Mm. There is a green room, but I was making sure I was being ultra safe mm. because 
yeah. you know we had to have big long discussions about whether i could go in at all so and, and then when you're on set there's a stick mm. which means that you are two meters away from everybody at all mm. times and you are masked up for the whole time until just before they say action can you buy these um, sticks <laughs> well they, they would also need a, a floor manager to wield ah. to wield it for you as well it's just they, they, literally i knew there was something wrong with my life too close to somebody <laughs> this sort of stick gets in stick hang on you need to be two meters away it's amazing uh, so isn't it? it's what, the human thing is to drift towards somebody when you're talking to of them. course and to lean in yeah. and all of that sort of stuff but they're fastidious about that so it did mean sadly that you know you normally when you go in and fill something you you hang around in the green room and, and chat to everybody but uh, i was you know i was in in my dressing room and then you mm. you called down to set but i worked a lot with sally who of course has been in it since i was a kid mm. um it was you know it was sally and kevin when well, I, was, I was going to uh, say to you did, that's when did i was you watching used it. to watch coronation street i mean yeah these iconic characters i know you're probably I, a bit young for the sort of elsie tannerina sharples era but uh... i remember when violet carson died mm. and they showed the first episode of coronation street again mm. so that was when i was first aware of ina sharples i hadn't realized she'd actually carried on in it as long as she had but the first i knew of yeah of ina sharples was when she died but i remember annie walker and i remember len fairclough and i remember deirdre and i particularly remember Mike Baldwin going out with Shirin Ta- Johnny Briggs and Shirin Taylor mm. was played his girlfriend and I th- could have sworn I knew Johnny Briggs from something else and then it was years later I realised it was the film 633 Squadron <laughs> I think that he's in which had been a film we'd watched quite a few times at home uh, and the idea that somebody from, from a film was in Coronation Street seemed really strange to me I was watching you know. a Crown Court the other day and yeah the woman who played Vera Duckworth just turns up as a prison guard. Well, prior to that, she's an extra because mm. she was a background artist yeah. for many, many years. So you can see her as an extra. Well, people like Fred G as well. You know, they, they all had this. Yeah. They all sort of were in the Granada pool, weren't they, in many ways? Yeah, because well, they, yeah, they were all filmed up here. So yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. And I think because the, the Time Warrior, the Doctor Who that's filmed at Peckford mm. and Castle, that's got a few of those. You know, if you work with an old Northern actor, mm. you know, your hope is that if they're around... 40 years ago they might have been in Doctor <laughs> Who if, the, if, if they were one of Iron Gron's men and that happened I remember working with an old actor in the theatre and I said, I said to him I'm surprised you haven't been in Doctor Who Andy and he said oh I have I was in and I was like oh you're an extra because actually a lot of those actors who were used to playing quite big parts or decent parts because they'd never worked for the BBC mm played Iron Gron's men because it was a chance to have a BBC credit, even though it was, you know, non-speaking, mm. non-credited walk-on work that they might not have done under other circumstances. Mm. So this guy, Andy, who's had a great career, yes, is, is one of the sentries on Iron Gron's castle. Uh, he doesn't get any lines. The guy that gets the lines is awful. <laughs> and you think, I wonder why they didn't give them to Andy, because he could have done it really well. But a lot of those people crop up in Crown mm. Court as well. And, I mean, uh, the characters that stick out for me, the Ogdens, mm. Hilda Ogden yes. was... Loomed Hilda large and Stan, and Stan with Eddie the Yates as the, uh, the lodge. And Eddie Yates, I was going to say, yeah. Eddie Yates. And I was always pleased to see Jeffrey Hughes in stuff. Mm. And I'd be interested to look to see actually how long he was in it. Yes. But he was definitely a major character. It felt when, like years when later when, when he when we came up in Trial of a Time Lord. And it felt like yeah. he'd been off. But of course he was doing Onslow and stuff for um, keeping up yeah. the voices. But... And he was, a, he was a very good actor, yeah. Jeffrey Hughes. And, uh, and of course nice one of the voices of the Beatles, I believe, in the Yellow Submarine. Oh, in, uh, in Yellow Submarine, that's so right. Have done, yeah. done a good 10 years on, on Coronation Street. Oh, really? Well, he he managed to carve a career afterwards as well, yeah. which some you know, do. Is, is, yeah. 
Well, there's no rules, it seems to me. You mentioned Fred G. Mm. I, I remember seeing Fred Feast turn up in the film of Little Voice, mm. but he didn't do... Some people make a big impact as those soap characters. Now, some, I'm sure, through choice, don't do other stuff. And then some can play quite a sort of small part and then end up in Hollywood. Of he's, so he's Malak, no Malak as well, isn't he, in All Creatures back in the day. He's the, the, oh, yes. the slaughter. The slaughter uh, he, he had a very good career and he was a good mm. actor. He was a good actor. I believe he even turns up in Ready When You Are, Mr. McGill, when we were talking about extras. So. Oh my goodness! I think he's the sound ah. man. Ah, yes. I've, I, fun enough, because I listened to your podcast on oh. that and thought I need to watch that again. Uh, but that and very peculiar practice. Your dulcet tones uh, <laughs> have been the soundtrack to my gardening during lockdown. Oh, well, that's, that's nice to know. <laughs> so, so, and you very much inspired me to do very peculiar practice again, which I haven't done ah, yet. Good show. And yes, ready when you are, Mister Wigan. Not so much Yellow Thread Street, although I did. I actually did look at the couple of episodes that were on YouTube. So, I, so actually, that's a lie. I did watch Yellow Thread Street. <laughs> It's about as much as you can. <laughs> but it was funny because it had seemed so modern and sophisticated and it looks so 80s now. <laughs> it looks like it's, it was. Well, those shows, 90s, it looks a bit like it? pop video. Yeah, it's just uh, it's the soundtrack, mm. the pling, the doing, doing mm. soundtrack. That I remember Shez and I, when we first got together, we reminisced about 80s mm. shows that we liked, like Midnight Caller mm. and The Equalizer. Uh, that had been so cool. And so we got some to watch to recapture our youth. And Midnight Caller with Jack Killian, Gary Cole as Jack Killian, who'd seemed so cool and so smooth yeah. and so wise. And he's so cheesy and it's so neon and yeah. mullet central that you go, this seemed like something that would never date because <laughs> it was so modern. And of course, everything does. <laughs> it's like visions of the future made in 1968, you know. <laughs> yeah, just... but it does amuse me that people will, have, you know, television historians, amateur and professional, you know, it's going to be so easy to look back and go, well, that was filmed in lockdown down those three people who love each other having an intimate conversation in a triangle two meters apart in the open air it is fascinating watching television now just working out uh what the angles are oh he's behind that table for a reason and she's yeah, over, yeah. Well, yeah it's, it's fascinating stuff but of course you're on the inside of that do you think it's going to i mean i know you can't ever say but you not think you're going to become the next percy sugden you might be in it for sort of 10 15 years well who knows who knows you know every time i've left somebody has gone are you back again i say well i'm not dead <laughs> so <laughs> watch out for that tram yes <laughs> and i know there are episodes that i've filmed that have yet to go out and the storyline i am in hasn't ended and i'm still alive so but that's the, i mean it's amazing you you think Oh, I'll have some clue as to what's going. I haven't got a clue, if I'm honest. I haven't got a clue. Well, I just feel there's a definite on. history. You've got your Arthur Lowe. You've got your Percy Sugden. I feel you're a stepping stone in a great tradition in many ways. But of course, the other side of that coin is that now that we've heard that Russell T. Davis is returning to Doctor Who, do you think? Do you oh, think yeah. that opportunity might finally have arrived for you? Well, I, I mean, I, I'm just absolutely thrilled you don't want to be the next graham i mean <laughs> i'm just thrilled as a doctor who fan take me out of the out of the equation that you know it used to be that people you know in the playground would say oh what's happening next with doctor who? It, it seemed to be that people have lost sight of doctor who a little bit and that's because it's been on for you know it's been back 15 16 17 years or whatever as much I think as we're much now as anything equivalent to more or less the time when john nathan turner started you know in terms of the number oh of years it's been on air oh it's, my it's God, kind of that's... ridiculous <laughs> that's terrifying i remember about 18 months ago thinking oh this week would have been key to time stones of blood and i thought right and that was must be 
couple of years ago now. Well, I, d- I did the two doctors in my podcast the other mm. day and was talking about writing to Quatermass actors because John Stratton is in, ah. the, in the is in the two doctors and going Quatermass seemed like another lifetime. Well, it was another lifetime, you know, fusty, old, ancient mm. stuff. And I realised that actually the two doctors is now longer ago than Quatermass and the Pit was when I was watching the two doctors. Yeah, that's t- I think that's it's awful. utterly frightening where the last 30 years ago. I realised only this week that the Flash Gordon movie was on at the weekend. And I realised that it's now closer in time to Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe than now, if you see what I mean. Oh, my God. And it just makes... Um, It it messes with my brain, that stuff, because I think... I kind of remember... It's funny, when you talk about being a a television fan, I remember I realised I became a television fan because there was a repeat of old Coronation Street. I think on the 20th anniversary, they showed some of the episodes from the 60s, if you see what I mean. So they, they showed yeah. Bus Crash 1, they showed the first episode, a couple of others. And I actually thought, I'd, I was actually more interested in those than the show itself was at the time. And I suddenly realised now that those are in what you might call the first half. I, it's when you sort of start to realise that in the entire history of James Bond, Roger Moore's now in the first half of it. And you just think, that can't, it doesn't compute. And yet it, the last 20 years have just, boom, gone. Well, the other James Bond thing is somebody put in the time that Daniel Craig has played James Bond, we've had five Doctor Who's or something ridiculous. (laughs) A film Um, for each one of them. (laughs) Extraordinary. But I feel with Russell T. Davis, I wouldn't, if you told me that the day before, I wouldn't have believed it. People's television careers go on. That's fanciful. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. I wonder if he's going to be some sort of Stan Lee figure, you know, a, mm. a mastermind over an extended franchise mm. so that now when you go on Disney, you've got all these different sort of different strands of Marvel. I wonder if he's going to be a, an overseer over a brand, if you like. Yeah. Uh, which, which means, because to just be retreading what he did first time round is unlike him. It's not going to happen. So, but I'm genuinely excited because I think he really knows how to place Doctor mm. Who within the public consciousness and that's what it needs doctor who works when everybody knows that it's on mm. and that it does stuff it's great when it does stuff for us mm. and brings back people we like and blah 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 blah. but it's when the mums in the playground come and talk to me mm. and say that their kid's been excited about mm. this or what's happening next week when it's the sort of talking point mm. yeah when people send me texts who aren't Doctor Who fans going, I've read that this is going to happen. <laughs> they go, oh yeah, everybody's talking about Doctor Who. And that's really hard to do. Uh, harder now, you know, Chris Chibnall had a harder job oh, yeah. in that side of things than Russell T. Davis did in 2005 because the television landscape was different. Yes. So they need a mastermind to pull it off and keep Doctor Who a going concern in the television Fresh landscape. Fresh and new and relevant, I think that's the thing. Yeah, and he's definitely the guy, he brings with him his great skills as a writer mm. and his great humanity and his great wit, mm. but he's a television person. Mm. He's across everything. This is the guy who, never forget listening to the commentary of Army of Ghosts and the Doctor's sort of Ghostbusters machine, mm. and he goes, oh, there's a close-up of the Doctor pressing the button mm. in the part, and he said, oh, that's a remount because um, the button was a bit shit. <laughs> and you go, this is a guy who's across 
everything so much mm. that it'll go that button's not good enough we need to do that again and you go this is somebody who's spinning so many plates and yet he's got time to expect the minutest pea shoot on each one of them and you need some and it's because he's got a brain the size of a planet but you know you can tell he's sort of got a voracious appetite for television but that means he's across every element of it he knows who all the actors are as well as telling the story as well as you know making sure that the toy shops are full to the brim of stuff that, <laughs> that, that, that's got the kids talking yeah. about it when it's not on and all that sort of thing so I'm really excited about having Doctor Who coursing through the lifeblood of the country again I didn't believe I thought I was getting old mm. I always liked Doctor Who I'm always yeah. excited when Doctor Who is on but I think even I was taking it for granted a little bit and going well I can just wait for the next season whenever it is but now I'm really excited I'm really excited all over do you, again do you not <laughs> even have the sort of slightest you know you should never go back qualm or, or does that not really mm. I mean I suppose as an actor you never really think that because you may tour in the same play 20 years apart but yeah I I, I trust him to know yes. what he's doing he clearly knows what he's mm. doing and as i say that press release was worded very interesting were you dancing around doing, the room he's doing well i was i well first i was on the phone to charles norton okay. who is you know just some of the bbc animation mm. things and he quite often rings me up basically for a chat mm. but you know there'll be some ruse he'll say do you know what a font is <laughs> you know this russell uh, but i think he's just after so and we end up you yeah. know I, I answer the question he's asked me within the first two minutes and then 45 minutes later we've covered the whole of yeah. what's going on in the world of doctor and just as we were finishing off my phone started going bing 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 bing, bing. <laughs> and i thought oh christ somebody's died do you know what i, I mean because that's normally what my life is being told that one of my heroes or friends is dead i'll get my obit file off the wall uh, yeah it's just a sinking feeling mm-hmm. and i couldn't believe it and i looked and i went oh my god this what what no and it just seemed yeah it wasn't even something I had considered. No. And well, I, you know, I don't think anybody I, we, had, I've been, really. I mean, no, it wasn't something that anybody had ever thought could be possible. He's moved on. It's never go back. And I'd been chatting to friends about yeah. going, well, we, you know, Peter Harness has got show running experience and Peter's a nice guy and a good writer. Pete McTie mm. is doing really, really well on telly. That You know, mm. there are there are success. Toby Whithouse, mm. I would love to have a go at it. I think Toby Whithouse is a great writer and knows the show. So there's, you know, it's like, I wonder which one they're going to go for. Or the big thing was, well, maybe they won't go go for a fan Mm. and that would be really interesting Mm. and will that work can that work today because even if you're not a fan you still have to know that you're not going to make any particular blunders but we never once went yeah let's let's get us and and actually during lockdown because of emily cook's tweet-alongs i'd started watching and we did have a friend of ours come to stay when lockdown Mm. was only going to be three weeks a disabled actress friend of Mm -hmm. shez's who otherwise would have been on her own who ended up staying with us for about five Mm. months and it was nice to have her but it meant she was here for the tweet along she'd never seen doctor Mm. who so we did the rose Uh. tweet along and i said to her she's got a great giggle mo she's a funny character and i said what do you think of that mo and she went oh what and she oh and she's she's somebody who sort of comments along to stuff yeah. so she'll sort of go what what's that you know and I said what did you make of that Mo and she said well it was different and I said what was it different from yeah. and she said it was different to everything and I thought it's different to everything is quite a good description yeah. of actually what Doctor Who is and so we ended That'll up watching quite yeah we ended up watching quite a few yes. others. And I hadn't watched any RTD Doctor Who in a in a while because my archaeology, if you like, is still 
much more obsessed yeah. with the classic series because it's older and I think the sort of time mm. I did think that about the Houston Quatermass as mm. well but, but so I didn't write to loads of actors who are now dead because I thought well that's the recent mm. one but of course it's, it's ancient yes. now but anyway I'd not done a lot of modern modern mm. was I'd, I'd, and I'd, I'd watched when the Russells went out I watched them on a Saturday mm. I watched them again the Saturday night mm. then I watched them on the Sunday mm. morning then I watched them midweek mm. and then I watched them on the Friday night before the next episode on the Saturday Friday. so those episodes became quite familiar to mm. me because I'd watched them five times <laughs> in a week and loved them mm. on you know on the whole and uh, but I think then you start taking things for granted and then I, and I think we very much did take Russell for mm. granted it's only when and, and looking back on these episodes and going God, the amount of stuff that we had, and the fact that every week there's a that the episode had a headline mm. about it, and that and I remember, you know, so and so at work talking to me about that, and blah, blah blah, and it suddenly I got the smell of a full Toys R Us with kids charging about the Doctor Who theme blaring out of the speakers. I got the vision of the advertising hoarding. We've got a bill you know, Bill outside our house on the mm. side of the shop next to our house, which had Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper on it on the sides of buses. Mm. And suddenly I, I felt back there again, realizing, realizing that I was sort of in the eye of the storm mm. and it was very, very exciting. But looking back going, we were so well, lucky that yeah. that went as well as it did. Yeah. Not only that it went well with the general public, but also I liked it because yes. it could have gone so wrong in so oh, many yeah. ways. And I was suddenly watching that stuff again, transported in lockdown, where I think our emotions mm. were all a bit heightened anyway, going, this was thrilling. So then the fact that lockdown was topped off by the person that produced that going, oh yeah, I'm coming back to the show. You go, what? And let's not forget, this is not, because you say about never mm. going back this is not somebody who's tried a bit of time away from the show and decided to come back to Walford mm. or whatever this is somebody who's written who's just won tons awards, of international yeah. and industry awards for it's a sin and years and years was, was no slouch mm. either but it's a sin I th- it was an incredible piece of television so this is somebody who was only going forward mm. and was only ascending higher who's gone, well, I'll, I'll take Doctor Who with yes. me, I think, rather than I'll go back to Doctor Who. And he cares about the show as well. And I, I... You don't like to sort of, you know, you can't speculate too much, but do you think maybe chances are that a season a year might actually happen? On, on his watch? Well, on his watch, we got a season of that, a season of Torchwood. Yeah, <laughs> a season of the Astonishing, Sarah isn't it? Yeah. Because, <laughs> because I, I mean, I know that, I mean, you, you are obviously from what you've been telling us today, you've, you're aware of the difficulties of filming in lockdown, but the episode count has dropped considerably, hasn't it, over the last few years? I mean, I don't really know how any of that works because mm. uh, I've never. No, I'm I just really mean that sometimes scenes in terms of, but... things being in the public consciousness are because they're there to be seen, if you see what I mean. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think, and I think, you know, through Nova, I th- you know, television is hard, mm. and producing. I, again, I think Russell probably made it quite difficult for, for everybody mm. else because he seems to be able to get stuff he, he done. Just, yeah, he's a machine, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anyone's read the writer's tale, you imagine him at sort of three o'clock yes. in the morning, bashing yes, out a script, absolutely. hooting to himself, and producing something that's filmable the next day, and go, oh, marvelous, you know. Yeah, I I think visibility can only help. I I have to be honest and say that people have said to me, you know, oh, is Doctor Who still on anymore? Then I thought it had finished, and that's that's purely from the fact that it's not been as as visible as you say. It needs to be sort of out there. I am slightly baffled by the current idea that no publicity is somehow enticing. Mm. I find that that to me is a flawed. Market. I'm look. I'm not going to put myself in the position of a producer. I've never been one. I don't have. But I, it seems to me that 
even if you hold back on the vi- you know Peter K does that brilliantly he will only release something every now and again so that makes him a valued product mm. I get mm. that I get that but I think with something like Doctor Who you need to throw out a guest star every now and again there's this thing this of event television isn't there I mean the, the thing that yeah. we used to say back in the 80s though was this whole thing of because it's no longer on half the year or three quarters of the year it loses that impact. I mean, when you're up against Coronation Street, which was on two, three times a week, every week, yeah, there yeah. are viewing habits that people get into. And so you have to have something that's going to say, actually, this is yeah. on every week. I One of my theories about why Doctor Who struggled in even in the uh, Peter Capaldi era to a certain extent was that, you know, those daily repeats that were on BBC Three? Yeah. It just kept people interested if you see what I mean. But also, do you, do you remember also, BBC Three didn't just have a repeat, it had a red button commentary. Mm. There are episodes of Doctor that, that have a red button commentary, a Doctor Who confidential, mm. and a DVD commentary. Mm. And now, the, I mean, the current DVDs are almost vanilla, mm. aren't they? Mm. And it's almost like, well, they'll sell, mm. so we don't need to... But all of that stuff adds to the appetite. And I understand, again, holding spoilers back mm. is very, very important. But people didn't watch Vigil because they had no idea it was on. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That had teasers, mm. that had trailers, that had, that had you know, cast, yeah. casts announced well in advance. And it does seem to me Doctor Who vanishes, for, vanishes from the public discussion mm. for months on end at the moment, and I never think so that's Sort of sneaks good. out, has an episode, and then nothing for nine months. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, even the show, I mean, I, you know, I'm not particularly sort of intrigued by uh, Line of Duty, but... Line of Duty has that big question and does have that push and becomes something they talk about in the papers. And it, it's kind of slipped off that radar, really, hasn't it, to a certain extent? Yeah. Um, the talking and, point, and, talking about the old, what you used to call water cooler television. Yeah, I mean, I don't envy them for lockdown mm. because producing something yeah, that absolutely. just has people talking in it is hard enough. So I think they've, you know, they've probably pulled off miracles. I'm, I'm interested to see my old mucker, John Bishop, in it as well. I've, and uh, John and I go back yeah. 20 years, I should think. And we're so now looking, uh, well, I mean... If, if if you can't get through the door now, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that that old thing of... Do you uh, think you are ever going to get your Doctor Who credit? I've no idea. I know, um, I know you're in the Adventures they've, film, they've, but... Um, they've had 15 years. They're obviously not in a hurry. They've had 15 they're years. They're waiting for you to uh, grow into the part. That's what it is. I just have to... Uh, I just do what I always do, which is Model put what I do out there and, and, and hope people like it. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Toby. That's been wonderful. That's my pleasure. I hope it's been interesting for people. Thanks for having me. You take care. Many thanks to Toby Haydoke for taking the time to talk to us here on Vision on Sound today. Toby Haydoke's time travels, as well as all of his other activities, can always be found via tobyhaydoke.com or by following at Haydoke Podcasts on Twitter, and we hope that he'll pay us another visit here at Fab HQ sometime very soon. My thanks today also should go, as always, to everyone here at Fab Radio International for everything that they do to make the show possible, and of course, my thanks go out to you for listening. As ever, I have been Martin, and this has been Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now and take care.